0: Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feda, and this is a brand new podcast where we talk about all things cannabis and science. If you've ever walked into a dispensary and wish you had a scientist on speed dial while you're trying to choose between hundreds of products, or if you're just curious about some of the claims being made about CBD and whether the research substantiates them, this is the podcast for you. We interview a range of scientists across the fields of neuroscience, psychology, medicine, and biology who are working in the field and doing real research on cannabis. We cover topics like, how can cannabis help with my anxiety? How soon can I drive after smoking a joint? What are terpenes and how do they affect us? What is the difference between an indica and a sativa? What level of THC can our bodies actually metabolize? How can patients with epilepsy seem to respond to cannabis when nothing else works? So if you've ever wondered about these questions or so many more, stay tuned. We have a fascinating series ahead of us where we interview very curious researchers within the field and they offer so much knowledge and wisdom about cannabis as a plant and what it can do for us as humans and as a society. Welcome back to our two-part series on epilepsy. Today we are featuring Dr. Katherine Jacobson, who is a neuroscientist and a mother of a son who was diagnosed with epilepsy at a very young age. Dr. Jacobson is dedicated to advancing the knowledge of cannabinoid-based medicines by working with regulatory authorities across the globe. She serves as the VP of Regulatory and Medical Affairs at Tilray. Before that, she was a postdoc fellow at the University of California, San Francisco, where she established GW Pharmaceuticals' expanded access investigational new drug application for epidialects. So, we'll get more into this in this episode, but Dr. Jacobson was really instrumental in making epidialects, this isolated cannabidiol compound, available to children with epilepsy here in the United States. She has a very fascinating personal story, and at one point she started a lab in her garage processing black market cannabis to make medicine for her child. So this episode is very deep. It's not just about these trials and scientific research for her. There are very high emotional stakes in getting medical-grade cannabis to patients and children with epilepsy. And she's really been a pioneer in that. So it was just so lovely to talk to her and hear her story. I'd love to hear more about your path. And, and how do you begin to tell your story um, as a scientist, but, but also as a human who, who's very interested in this topic? Right. So it's actually,
1: it's not a story I could make up, Emily. The, so I had a PhD in neuroscience in a completely different field from epilepsy, Um when our second child was born, Ben, and he was born in 2009. Um, And within the first, like I think at 14 weeks, he had his first seizure. And once that first seizure started, they just came uh, one after the other and they they were uncontrollable. Uh, So I, at the time, really didn't know much about epilepsy at all. I had no personal experience with it. I knew nothing about it, but I took a, a leave of absence from work and at that time, I was actually doing postdoctoral research at UCSF, completely unrelated to epilepsy. And I took about three years off just trying to get Ben stabilized, um, and he never stabilized. Over those three years, I did a lot of research just on my own, trying to figure out what epilepsy is, what causes it. Um, and I... I I learned a lot and and mainly what I learned is that we just don't know anything. So I decided to go back to Stanford to do a postdoctoral fellowship in epilepsy, like the basic science behind epilepsy research. So my training is in basic science, meaning it's preclinical. We were looking at animal models of epilepsy and it was during that time at Stanford that I really learned um, that the state of research for epilepsy is has been stagnant or at least uh, in 2012 when i went back to stanford it had stagnated Mm. and we were using the same animal models to understand epilepsy that we had been using for the last 50 years and so the same types of drugs were being developed only they had a better side effects profile than the previous generation of drugs but they were all targeting the same underlying mechanisms in the brain and at the same time i you know was actively researching in the community for anything that might help treat seizures, anything parents might know about. Um, so I was part of a Facebook group. and there was a group of parents in San Francisco in the in the Bay Area who were all kind of just starting to treat their children with some type of cannabis. And I didn't know anything about cannabis either. So, I went to the literature and I found papers from the 70s and 80s that describe the anticonvulsant effects of CBD and THC. So these are the two major cannabinoids in cannabis. And from there, I thought, okay, there's actually something to this. So, um... You know, I, I don't know, I didn't at the time know much about CBD or THC, except that there had been some clinical research done on CBD. So we knew from a paper published in the 70s that eight adults with treatment-resistant epilepsy had been treated with two to 300 milligrams of CBD daily, and about half of those eight people saw a reduction in seizure frequency. Mm-hmm. And I also, and we didn't have comparable studies on the effects of THC in people with epilepsy. So I also knew that CBD was not psychoactive, whereas THC was psychoactive. And I also knew the third point was that I knew that there had been studies on the animal models using just CBD and using just THC. And in those animal models, CBD was always either not effective or effective, anticonvulsant, uh, whereas THC what, could be pro-convulsant. So there were some studies showing that THC might reduce seizure activity, but some showing that it might increase seizure activity. And that's a risk you take with any anticonvulsant. Um, but based on all of that research that I did, I decided to proceed with um, finding enough CBD to treat Ben with two to three hundred milligrams of CBD a day.
0: Okay. And this was 2012? Yes. So, so, this was really before it was out in the open and before it was so commonly accepted as this um, treatment for epilepsy. So, so what was going through your mind and did you have some fear or apprehension of doing this or did you trust that, you know, minimal research and evidence that was available?
1: You know at that point, I really felt like we had nothing to lose and um i i did i I set out to do whatever I needed to do to get my hands on that amount of c b d and it it was- impo- it wasn't it didn't exist um, right. so what I had to do is I had to so first I went to the dispensaries and I was completely naive about the dispensaries and I really thought they were designed for medical use um so I was uh, very surprised when I went into the dispensary right. and it was really just bags of dried flour. And this uh, is and in then, this is in the Bay Area, like Northern California. Yeah, San Francisco, mm-hmm. actually, on Mission Street in San Francisco. Okay. And and the bud tenders, you know, explained the situation, and they they handed me whatever dried flour they had with as much CBD in it that they had, and at the time it was very little. I mean the THC to CBD ratios were all very high. And if if they did have anything with CBD in it, it was, it didn't have enough CBD. Right. So, you know, that was the first problem is the starting material had too much THC in it and not enough CBD. And then the second problem was there was no starting material that had no THC in it. So I, I would have to learn how to extract the cannabinoids and then remove the THC And then concentrate the the resulting um, liquid so that I could get, you know, 200 milligrams of CBD per ml Mm -hmm.
0: because that was about the volume I wanted to give Ben. Okay, so there was no product on the market at all that had uh, minimal levels of THC. That's right. So that was so that was something that and I know at one at one point you actually set up a lab in your garage to process some of this cannabis into this medication. So what was that experience like and what were the results? So
1: the first step of trying to find CBD enriched dried flower was very difficult. So luckily I had met some people in this field who were willing to help me and it was it was a search and everybody You know, someone would connect me to someone else who said they knew someone who had the CBD-enriched dried flower, and that would lead nowhere, but they might know someone else that I could talk to. So I kind of went on a hunt in the underground, quote-unquote, medical cannabis world, and I met a lot of different people, some really good people, some not-so-good people. And the CBD-enriched dried flower at that time was the dried flower that wasn't selling and um, I did manage to find some, and then I started the process of, you know, uh, baking it to decarboxylate the cannabinoids, extracting it with ethanol. I had to learn how to column, uh, use column chromatography to get the right fraction that had CBD but not THC in it. So imagine my garage is filled with. This green liquid of cannabis extract that I couldn't, you know, run through these columns without removing some of the plant uh, waxes and chlorophyll. So I had to do that step. I mean, it was really a mess. And I also I had no standard operating procedure for doing this, so I, I was just kind of doing it ad hoc every time. So the results were different every time. So it was incredibly stressful and i I hated every minute of it,
0: yeah that I'm so sorry that sounds really t- tough but but in the end, were you able to create a a medication that you did give Ben? I
1: was, so in the end, I got a few times this concentrated cBD uh liquid, and it was an ethanol because ethanol is what. I was using to get the cannabinoids out of the plant material. So I wanted it to be very concentrated because I didn't want to give Ben a lot of ethanol. So I I actually managed to get it quite concentrated. Now, Ben responded well for us. It was a big difference. We we recorded about a 40% reduction in seizure frequency. Mm -hmm. But I had a friend whose son had a completely different type of epilepsy than Ben. And I shared this with her because she was... Um, I had met her through this Facebook group, and we were we were on the same path, really. And her son responded incredibly. He went from having 100 seizures a day to less than a handful. Wow. And so it was that dramatic result
0: that was really encouraging
1: uh,
0: for everyone, I think. And what kind of epilepsy um, does Ben have, and what kind of epilepsy did your friend's child have? So Ben was born with a brain malformation
1: called polymicrogyria, okay. and so a, a part a, a part of his brain has too many of those folds. Like, a, you know what those folds in the brain look like? Yes. So, so part of his brain just has too many of them, and they're smaller than normal. So, poly meaning many, micro meaning smaller, gyria,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that these kinds of brain malformations can often lead to to very difficult to control epilepsy uh my friend's son had a type of epilepsy called astatic myoclonic epilepsy which is i think quite rare and i'm i'm i don't know much about that type of epilepsy but it, it's a completely different type that that in the end responded much better to cannabidiol than my son's
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So that must have been... So at that point, I mean, you had two um, very different stories. So was that enough to kind of give you a little bit of um, incentive to continue researching this and, and see what, what else could happen? Well,
1: I'll tell you, there was a lot of confusion in the, the community about even how to extract the cannabinoids. So we were, at one point before I did this myself, we were working with a collective who was extracting ca- cannabinoids with glycerol, right, which is like a sugar water. And they were giving families these little bottles and saying, take a few drops of this, this um, oil or this sugar water that has cannabinoids in it. And I had that tested and there were no cannabinoids in it. And that's because you can't actually get the cannabinoids out of the plant material with glycerol. And so, I knew there were a lot of families in the Bay Area and actually around the country trying to figure this out and and um, I just felt this need to help every every family that might benefit and the mm. what I wanted to help clear up were all of these myths surrounding these various cannabis oils and 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 what they should be giving their kids um and so. Knowing that this this friend's child responded so well, um, also knowing that CBD has a completely different mechanism of action in the brain than any other anti-seizure drug on the market, I thought it was really important to move this research forward because now you have, we had the potential to have a new drug, um, like a completely new class of anti-seizure drugs.
0: Yeah, So, and I'd love to kind of get into that more from your um, perspective as a neuroscientist. And what do you think is the difference with cannabis in terms of treating epilepsy um, than so many of the other pharmaceutical drugs that have been available but ha- haven't necessarily had strong responses for patients?
1: Yeah, so here's how I think about it as a scientist. You have a, you know, you have a molecule like cannabidiol, that targets a certain receptor, or maybe in cannabidiol's case, a number of receptors. Um, the other drugs that are out there also target receptors, um, and we know what they are. So the difference between cannabidiol and the other drugs is just that now we have a new class of drugs. So all of the existing classes of drugs were targeting, you know, uh, GABA receptors, sodium channels, potassium channels, calcium channels, and No one fully understands how cannabidiol might lead to a reduction in seizures, but we do know that it's probably not through any of those receptors or channels. And that's how I think about it. I don't think about it as being any different than any other molecule that's been developed. Mm -hmm. It's just that um, it targets a different uh, receptor than the previously
0: developed ones. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to kind of hear more. So in 2013, I know you were part of this Facebook community and conducted a survey among parents who were giving their children cannabis to to treat different forms of epilepsy. And and we talked about this a little bit, but but what else did you learn from that study? And what were you able to extrapolate? So, the whole point of that
1: survey was for was to bring this to the attention of the medical community and the research community. Mm-hmm. So the 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 point of that study was not to say look this is working because we knew that what the families were giving the children was were un, was undefined. Like we didn't know what the chemical composition was of any of these preparations. So we didn't know what the final dose was. But I wanted whole medical community. I wanted practitioners, like neurologists, epileptologists, um, and researchers to know that that there's something of value and that it's worth researching more and trying to understand because families were seeing some benefits, but Mm -hmm. there was still so much confusion around what the right product is, what the right dose should be. Should, Should it be a combination of THC and CBD or should it be CBD only? Do some types of epilepsy respond better to a combination product than a CBD-only product? You know, there are so many questions. As a scientist, I was heavily criticized for that paper by people in the research community, academics, who thought that I was trying to say that there was some kind of efficacy data there. And that was not the point of the paper. The point of the paper was to say, look, this is happening there's something to this and we need to all get together and try to understand it more and figure it out.
0: Right, was there, at that point in time, had there been any anecdotal um, research that had been published or was it kind of just, of course there there were definitely families and parents who, who were using cannabis to treat their children, but had anyone made that effort to kind of aggregate that data and record it in any way? Not to my knowledge.
1: Okay. To my knowledge, that was the first survey that was published.
0: Uh-huh. And were the parents in the study, were they willing to be identified? Um, were Were people kind of still afraid of being out in the open, that they were using cannabis to treat their children? Some were, and some weren't. I mean, some were very
1: outspoken and happy to be identified, but some some were definitely still still a little bit... Um, hesitant about being identified. There was still a lot of talk about, um, you know, Child Protective Services coming in if they found out that you were giving your child some kind of, some form of cannabis. Um, So I would say the majority weren't comfortable going public, but there were some Mm -hmm. who were very comfortable with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that's so scary. Uh, and I can imagine as a parent, you probably wouldn't do that unless you felt that there really were not a lot of other options.
1: Yeah, yeah because it's, it's it's actually scary to think about giving your child anything that's not quality controlled. And that's still a big problem in this industry today is that the, you know, without federal regulation, Like, the the product quality piece is really important. I think it's really important for your listeners to understand that there is no federal oversight over the quality of these products. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, this means that every state regulates it separately, and they regulate it differently. And I think some states do a better job than others. But at the end of the day, these products are still not regulated in a way that would um make me feel comfortable giving them to Ben over the long term.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so while we're on that topic of of quality control because I I think that's so important. Um so fast forwarding a couple of years. Um and I'm sure so much happened during that period, but I <laughs> Wait, I, oh, I want to can I just say one other thing on yeah, the please. on the previous topic?
1: There was also this discussion and this is the difference between families living with severe treatment-resistant epilepsy. It affects the entire family. It's a devastating disease to live with. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And there was such a difference between what families were doing to try to help their children and what doctors and researchers were willing to do. And so all I kept hearing from doctors and researchers is, hey, we don't know what the long-term effects on cognition are. THC is really, really dangerous. Um, No, I'm not going to help you because THC is so dangerous. And my reply to them was always, look. You don't know what the long-term cognitive effects of any of these anti-seizure drugs are. Mm-hmm. No one like why hold THC to a higher standard than any of the other drugs that you're giving the kids. Mm-hmm. Number one, number two, we absolutely know what the long-term effects of uncontrolled epilepsy are, and they're right. bad. So um, that was a uh, that was a discussion that just kind of highlights the social stigma around these molecules that's irrational.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also that division between science and parenting as well, when you really are, really need something to treat the immediate effects that, that are, pro- I'm sure, devastating for you, your entire family versus understanding things from, you know, that, that gold standard double blind placebo controlled study that hasn't been able to be done yet. That, that's almost a luxury when you're really in that, in, in that really difficult situation. So I, I, I always use the term in a time frame that
1: matters. So mm-hmm. I understand that the, long, you know, the, the long-term goal is for us all to do more research and understand these molecules better. Mm-hmm. But there are patient populations right now who don't have that time to wait. And so I think put, framing it in the context of a risk-benefit analysis for the patients that you're talking about is is a, is a more humane way to talk about it. So for example, we have a very healthy 12 um, year old daughter, and I would never take the risk of exposing her to cannabis because I don't need to, right? The, the right. risks far outweigh any potential benefits. L- let's say just for example, she suffered from some kind of anxiety. Even so, I would never expose her to the risks of of cannabis Because she's a healthy 12-year-old. Now, the risks I'm willing to take for Ben are much, much different because I have to, right? Yeah. And I'm already taking those risks with all of the other drugs that I've exposed him to. And so I think framing it in terms of a risk-benefit analysis for the individual patient that you're treating
0: Mm -hmm. is a much more humane discussion. Hmm. Hmm. and do you think now in you know seven years later now cbd and cannabis is much more in the mainstream do you think those conversations are are happening or do you think that there still is a lot of stigma around this there is definitely still a lot of stigma around it and i have
1: these conversations still today with doctors all over the world so part of my job now is to um, expand access to cannabinoid-based medicines without, um, without waiting for the randomized placebo-controlled f- phase three trials. And it's, this is the conversation I'm having today with doctors in the UK, in Australia, in Germany, in Brazil. And they're all, they're all very uncomfortable with it. Because it's it's an unprecedented situation, right? They're being presented with a potential treatment option, but with no underlying clinical data. And they don't know what to do right. with that because that's never happened before. A drug has never been allowed to go into the patient-doctor discussion without approval by the FDA mm-hmm. or the relevant health agency in that country. So we're in this completely unprecedented situation and people, I mean, doctors are still very afraid of it, <clears throat> which is why I bring up the risk benefit analysis. So if you, if you, in, in aggregate, take all of the information we have about these products, um, appropriate dosing, um, adverse events, we have a lot of information that
0: could guide treatment. Right. So this is your, and this is your current position at TILRAID? Yes. Okay. So, so is most of your current role, is that speaking with physicians? Are you also speaking with patients or, um, involved in the research process at all? Yeah. So, so part of my job is to
1: really try to understand what kind of data the doctors need in order to feel comfortable. Okay. In this in this unprecedented situation, where you know FDA approval does not precede access, mm-hmm. because regulations in many countries have been driven by patient demand,
0: mm-hmm.
1: almost like a human rights issue. If you think about it, if if there's a potentially life-saving treatment uh, for a child with really severe epilepsy, but um that family can't access the treatment to, to even give it a trial period to see if it would work. I see that almost as a human rights issue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I know you were also involved in the expanded access trial for GW Pharmaceuticals Epidiolex. And as I understand, this was the first FDA-sanctioned trial for any sort of cannabidiol or CBD compound. So tell me more about this. What was your role in this trial? So what we did is um,
1: my friend and I, once we found out that it was really effective for Ben, so go back to 2013, um, we had this preparation that was, you know, somewhat effective for Ben, but really effective for this other child. And we looked around for a pharmaceutical company to develop the product for us because I couldn't I couldn't do it in my garage. I failed often, which meant that the kids would not have medicine. And that's really dangerous when you have epilepsy. So you, you, we wanted an uninterrupted supply of pharmaceutical grade, like quality CBD. And so we went to GW Pharma and uh, what they did is actually really, really impressive. And they deserve a lot of credit for what they did because... They, first of all, were willing to help us when it was a risk to their business, because at the time, CBD was still very scary to everyone because it came from the cannabis plant. Now we're talking about giving it to children who are medically fragile, right? Mm-hmm. So, so th- th- they, they, they were putting themselves at, at pretty high risk by doing this. And the first thing we did is we asked the FDA for compassionate access. So the FDA has a mechanism in place that allows patients to have access to potentially life-saving therapies that are not FDA approved.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we used that mechanism to get a pharmaceutical grade preparation of CBD legally through our doctor. Uh, and that took a lot of the stress off of me um, to have to produce this, right? And so, and by the time this all happened, there were hundreds and hundreds of families wanting access to this CBD. And many families who were not comfortable with products coming from dispensaries were were begging to get into this compassionate access IND. Mm-hmm. So GW Pharma started that. And because there was such high demand, they opened, um, I think it was 14... Compassionate Access INDs um, that each held twenty-five patients, and that's how the program got started. And
0: okay. and was this just in the U.S. or just in the just, U.S.? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so was Ben part of that study? Ben was part. So
1: that wasn't really a study. That was just Compassionate Access. Okay. But what they did that, what they did, which was really clever, is they did collect data from those patients. Mm-hmm. And through collecting that, it's observational data, right? They, they were able to narrow down which types of epilepsy were most likely to respond to CBD. And that's what guided their um, clinical development. Like epilepsy is really difficult to research because there are so many different types of epilepsy. and if you wanna be successful in a clinical trial, you really have to narrow down the indication Mm-hmm. Right, because it could be that you got a really positive response in one subset, but not in another, and and if you include all types of epilepsy, you might end up with a negative signal at the end of the trial, when really there there would have been a positive signal for for um, subtypes of epilepsy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm even remembering such a the dramatic difference between your son and then your friend's son.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I can imagine on on a larger scale with you know, hundreds of patients. So how, how what were the results of that trial? And what did you learn in terms of um, what types of epilepsy are more responsive to cannabis? Or to this, you know, CBD compound specifically? So I left... GW before, so
1: I never actually worked for GW Pharma. I had a postdoctoral fellowship in the Pediatric Epilepsy Center at UCSF that was partially funded by GW, and the purpose of that postdoc was to set up these Compassionate Access INDs and collect, you know, the observational data, and then I actually left UCSF before they started their phase two trials. Um. So I wasn't involved in the design of the phase two trials, but just based on just based on what they did, you can assume that they found that Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome were most likely to respond to CBD at the doses which they were given. And that's why they proceeded with their phase two and phase three clinical trials for those two orphan indications. Okay. Okay but i don't think that rules out that other types of epilepsy can respond and the the big elephant in the room is still which types of epilepsy respond best to which types of formulations right mm-hmm. right so a lot of patients who failed on pure cbd then you know in, in the last 5 years there's been a kind of an explosion of various companies who claim to have the exact right ratio or the exact right terpene cannabinoid content for epilepsy. And so families will go try those and they might get lucky and they might find one that actually works when the pure CBD didn't work.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's
1: it's really not, it's a trial and error kind of exercise. There's no There's no evidence guiding that. And that's okay, because at the end of the day, if you find something that works, that's all the family cares about. Um, the danger, of course, is that a lot of these companies are producing oils claiming a a perfect cannabinoid terpene kind of combination content, but from batch to batch, that reproducibility is not there. And so what often happens, and I hear this from families all the time, is that They'll try a certain company's oil, and that works for a little bit, and then it stops (laughs) working. And we don't know if it stops working because the batch history is so variable, or if the initial response was a honeymoon period, which is also often the case with epilepsy, regardless of of which drug you take. Mm -hmm. So because we don't have those product quality standards in place, Mm -hmm. and no one can really guarantee that they're giving you the same product today that they were selling you 6 months ago. It's really hard to know.
0: Yeah, so you you bring up two really interesting topics and I want to dig into both of them. But first of all, so it sounds like, you know, there's numerous types of epilepsy that are not responsive to traditional pharmaceutical treatment. And do you think certain types have gotten um maybe more attention and more research because they have been more responsive with this isolated CBD compound? Do you feel like certain types of pediatric epilepsy are just left in the dust and not really getting that uh, research and attention that they might deserve?
1: Well, that's a that's a function of not enough funding in epilepsy in general. Okay. That's always been the case that we don't know how to accurately... Um, Target specific treatments to specific types of epilepsy that that's a function one of of the the low number of research dollars that are given to epilepsy and two mm-hmm. it's a really difficult disease to study because mm-hmm. often etiology is unknown, meaning we don't know wh- we don't know why a certain patient is having seizures to begin with so we only know in A fraction of the patients with epilepsy why they're having seizures so it's a really difficult disease to study I think the hype around CBD for Dravet syndrome syndrome and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome is just that's really a result of the hype around cannabis and CBD in general the the researchers in the field would love to understand all the types of epilepsy
0: right of course Um, yeah, and then another, another question that, that I'm curious about, which you brought up, I- is um, the differences between treating epilepsy with Epidiolex or just this isolated uh, cannabidiol compound versus a, a full plant tincture, which could draw from the whole plant and still include those terpenes and, and other compounds. So what do you think is the difference between treating epilepsy with this whole plant cannabis or just the isolated CBD in terms of the therapeutic benefits or the risks as well?
1: Um, I think the main problem with using anything other than a pharmaceutical grade preparation is that There's no consistency from batch to batch, and this is really, really difficult to achieve. So if you think about the hunt, like before you can answer the question of whether pure CBD is better or worse for a certain type of epilepsy than some kind of a mixture of whole plant. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen anyone define that yet, but not only do you have to define what's in it. You have to know how much of each compound is in it. And that's the first step, right? You have to define the product that you're testing before you can draw any conclusions about it. And that's where I see the biggest problem right now is those products aren't Mm well-defined and not just um, like which are the most important cannabinoids and terpenes in those products, but are they present at the same levels from batch to batch?
0: Mm-hmm, hmm yeah, absolutely, and I, I, I see that because I, I, I'm i really interested in your point as to certain types of um, epilepsy might be more responsive to a product with terpenes in it, but but if the terpenes are not defined, you know, how can we be sure of that, and how can we ensure consistency? That's right, and I think no one can
1: say whether or not some kind of combination product is better for a specific type of epilepsy than pure CBD, mm-hmm. but everyone wants to know. I would like to know too, right? That, that I place. and I, <laughs> I still have this. It seems like a crazy hope that there's some combination that will work for Ben, but until we have the the products defined, I can't possibly test it, right?
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as the role of cannabis cultivators, you know, within this industry versus the role of um, the pharmaceutical industry in terms of developing this? Well, what do you think that intersection, if there is an intersection should be?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because there are competing priorities, right? So every, every pharmaceutical company is driven by a need for profit and we i mean every business in general is driven by a need for profit i think the the cannabis cultivators and the pharmaceutical industry they're all driven by a need for profit mm-hmm. and the the way to get that profit is really well defined in the in the pharmaceutical industry we know what we know exactly what they have to do To get a drug approved we know what standards they have to meet we know how they're held accountable that same framework doesn't exist in cannabis cultivation yet and so Mm. but to assume that the cultivators are not driven by profit is naive right their level of of understanding of of science is is i mean Varies and requires. Um, I think you have to have that basic scientific training to mm-hmm. be able to ask the right question and then answer it. And mm-hmm. so, I don't see that happening in the cannabis cultivation arena yet. Mm-hmm. Not to say it couldn't happen, but the other point is that pharmaceutical companies will not develop generic formulations because there's really very little return on investment. So if you think about the case of Epidiolex, GW spent an enormous amount of money developing that product. It's now available by prescription because it's FDA approved, but they're still having to compete with all of these artisanal preparations that are in the marketplace. They Mm. didn't have to invest in research, that also don't invest in, in product quality. And so it remains to be seen how that's, how that's, how those artisanal preparations are going to affect the return on investment of epidiolex, and I think that's a that disincentivizes pharma companies to
0: invest in cannabinoids.
1: Mm-hmm. Does that
0: make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that that becomes a very tricky predicament for for these companies, but but also for parents. So what, what, as a parent, what do you recommend to um, friends or, or other people within your community who have children with epilepsy? <laughs> uh, and I mean, of course, I it's really hard no, it's, 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 and, it's, and I'm sure it's, it's such a, you know, I'm sure it's a case by case scenario, but
1: it is. But my first recommendation is always to try up a Okay. Now that it's available by prescription, mm-hmm. there's no reason why they shouldn't have access. This is for, for patients with epilepsy. Of course, it gets much more difficult when I get questions from people whose family members have rheumatoid arthritis or, um, I mean, the last question I got was, you know, my friend suffers from rheumatoid arthritis. There's been some talk that. Cannab- cannabinoids may help. There's no good medicine for rheumatoid arthritis right now. Mm-hmm. So what should she try? And that's a really difficult question for me to answer because Epidiolex is not available by prescription for that patient, right? Right. Um, and and then I, I I'm really uncomfortable recommending any artisanal cannabis product because I don't trust the product quality. So, I mean... At the end of the day, if they're asking for a recommendation, I I always suggest that they go meet with the manufacturers of the product and do their own due diligence to figure out if, if, if they're operating in an ethically um, appropriate way, uh-huh. if they're actually testing for contaminants like heavy metals and pesticides? Do they know, like if it's a manufacturer, do they know where they're getting the the raw material from, which would be the dried cannabis? Do they know how it's grown?
0: Mm-hmm. And there are
1: some very, very good producers out there, but you have to do the legwork yourself.
0: Right. Absolutely. And if, if there were a parent who had a child with epilepsy who was not responsive to epidiolex, um, Do you would you recommend that they pursue the same process in terms of seeking out an artisanal product? That but do their due diligence before. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a
1: single nationally known producer that I that that is that is trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So I would I would go local and I would go talk to the the company that's making the product and get some reassurance from, from them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think looking at the laboratory testing results and understanding um, how the product is made from the beginning until, it, you know, it ends up in a tincture is super important and not being disconnected from, from you know, how the plant is grown is very important as well as to how it's manufactured. That's right. And then what, what people also often don't know is that
1: even testing labs are not regulated adequately. Mm-hmm. And so, just getting a certificate of analysis from a company is is not enough that 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 would give me no reassurance whatsoever that Mm -hmm. the product is actually what's on (laughs) that the product contains what's on the certificate of analysis because Mm -hmm. labs are incentivized to provide results that are beneficial to their clients which are these companies and so there are a lot of examples of, of companies going to different labs until they get the right results that they're looking for. Mm. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trust the certificates of analysis myself.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But it puts people in a really difficult spot because nobody, like we don't know how to do, we don't have the equipment to do the testing ourselves, right? So I mean, one thing they can do is take the product, take it to an independent testing lab that's that that is trusted. So there are some that are very trustworthy. Make sure it gets tested at that lab and if those results match the results that the company's giving, that gives you some
0: level of trust, right? Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, but, but and I think it's for each individual. They also it's it's, it's a risk benefit analysis. We should talk about
1: what risks like the, the risks of having terpene levels vary is a is a an irrelevant risk. Mm-hmm. The risk of inaccurate um, labeling for content is high. Because yes. if a product that is not working, you don't know if it's because it was actually, you know, 50% of what the label claims is in there, or if 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 there's 200% more THC in there, and it's actually a pro-convulsive effect of THC that the child's experiencing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you really have to know what is important to look for? And I would say cannabinoid content is the most important thing. We need to know that the label accurately reflects the cannabinoid content. And then we need to know that there are no heavy metals or pesticides or, you know, these are these are really fragile brains that we're working with. Mm-hmm. And so small amounts of contaminants can have a, a, an effect. So mm-hmm. I think those are the two important things to look for. Now, whether someone's whole plant extract with, terp, you know, a selected terpene profile is better or worse than some other whole plant extract. I don't think that's as important as as the contaminant level and the, the cannabinoid
0: content. Right, absolutely. And I think it's also important, especially when you're um, talking about young children, who you're giving these products to? Do you do you think that what what how do you think the risk profile differs for you know someone who's maybe five, ten years old versus an adult?
1: I guess I think of it more in terms of burden of the disease. So mm-hmm. I think with a child who's five but having a hundred seizures a day, again, I think the risks of THC are are very low compared to the potential benefits. So long-term use of THC may cause some cognitive damage mm-hmm. in a develop. well, we know that it does cause cognitive damage in a developing brain, but that would far outweigh the damage caused by a hundred seizures a day. And I think that applies to a five-year-old and a 15-year-old and a 30-year-old. But often when you're talking about product quality and potential contamination, I think it's the same risk for a five year old and a thirty five year old again we're dealing i would i would I would frame the risk in terms of contamination and inaccurate labeling more as um, as more important than like I mentioned earlier that the cognitive like if we're talking about the risk of cognitive effects of THC,
0: mm-hmm. I think
1: that just merely depends on the burden of the disease that's being treated
0: when mm-hmm. you're
1: talking about contamination risk and so in that case if you're having 100 seizures a day there's very little risk that thc if it helps treat the seizures then it, it will make your life better right right of course but the risk of contaminated products or products that aren't accurately labeled are, are a different set of risks
0: right right that's what i'm trying to get yeah at. yeah no and that makes so much sense and i think it's very important to um yeah make the distinction between those two risks <laughs> Uh, the actual potential risk of of an accurately labeled product and the risk of the THC in general. Um, right. Yeah, so, so to wrap up here, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. When you first started this research journey, you were in your garage making your own oils. And now CBD, especially this past year with the, the farm bill passing, it's completely exploded, and it's available in grocery stores, in all sorts of forms. What have you thought of this massive explosion in these CBD products, and what do you think of some of the claims around them?
1: You know, I, I really think the biggest issue is product quality. I I, I don't understand why the federal government is not... Holding people accountable for product quality. I think that's that's where the discussion should be focused. The risks of like the the risks of CBD to the to the body and the brain are very, very low, and that's been documented. And so I'm not sure I follow this discussion surrounding just the risk of CBD in general to, to human health. I don't see that risk. You would have to take in very high doses of thc uh cbd
0: mm-hmm. over the long
1: term to be exposed to those risks so mm.
0: um
1: the product quality is 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 the main issue and oh. and as long as the federal government refuses to um regulate product quality we're gonna have um how should i phrase that um yeah, I, w- I would say product quality is the main issue. I, I-, I think if patients benefit from CBD products, why should they should be allowed to access those CBD products?
0: Um, but product quality needs to be controlled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And so, and, and then just to have a, a fun question to wrap everything up if you had unlimited resources, unlimited time to design any sort of experiment or trial about cannabis, um and its potential for medicine what would you like to know oh boy <laughs> <laughs> um
1: that's a tough one well i mean given that i have such a close and personal connection to epilepsy i think the 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 most important question for me right now would be to find out which combination drug products are most effective for which types of epilepsy? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That would be the holy grail right now. And then more generally speaking, if I were to step outside of, of the field of epilepsy, I think, and, and um, this comes from my experience at Tilray, we have, just like every other cannabis uh, producer, licensed producer, we, we have a number of different formulations that we produce. And they're prescribed for a number of different symptoms. I think what would be most useful to patients and the medical community in in general would be a way to assess which products are most effective for which indications, right? So if you have rheumatoid arthritis, what should that product look like? How much of it should you take on a daily basis versus um, cancer pain? Right? Those are two very different indications that are treated with the same basic product that everyone calls cannabis. But we really need to drill down and figure out which cannabinoids are most effective at which doses for specific symptoms.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, so yeah, I really appreciate your time and your wisdom and, and yeah, you have so much insightful and interesting things to say about this. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Yeah, I it's a pleasure. Yeah, and for really being a pioneer in this research, too. I, I know it hasn't been easy, so I really admire yeah, everything you've been through and what you've been able to accomplish. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes it will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.